sometimes you end up on a like a weird side adventure like you're in and you're like looking through soviet era like plate tectonic books and you're like what am i doing with my life Hey, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome back to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today. Today we are interviewing Anna Knight. It was great to talk to Anna. She's a PhD student in the lab of Dr. Catherine Nightingale in the BME department. Dr. Nightingale's lab is focused on developing and improving ultrasound imaging methods for medical imaging purposes. Yeah, she's been a Duke for a while. She did her undergrad here and now she is doing her PhD. Um, she's actually a personal mentor of mine and has shared a lot of really helpful advice uh, to me. And I think she gives a lot of really good advice in this podcast as well. So I hope you enjoy. You know, I, um, I know that you're a PhD student in Dr. Nightingale's lab, and you've been at Duke for some time now. Um, where are you from, and sort of what brought you to Duke? Ah, okay. So um, my family is like 10 generations of North Carolina, and then my dad made the big break to the big city of uh, Washington, D.C., and then <laughs> what did his firstborn child do? Move right back. So actually today is the 10-year anniversary of when I got into Duke Early Decision back in 2010, I graduated high school in 2011, and so I did Duke undergrad, and then I went Duke undergrad, graduated 2015 with degrees, a degree, you only get one, in biomedical engineering, minors in chemistry and Chinese, and then I went straight into doing my PhD also in biomedical engineering. So from Arlington, I guess is the like short version of that answer, but I went long. <laughs> Growing up, was it, like, assumed you were going to go to Duke? No, actually. My um, my parents, neither of them are... My dad's an accountant, and my mom was in banking, so they were both pretty, like, number-minded, but uh, my mom was really big on the liberal arts education. And so, actually, when I did my, like, classic junior year of high school college tour um, over spring break, we went mostly to small liberal arts schools up in the, like... Northeast, and it was rainy and miserable. And so I now have this theory <laughs> that no one ever goes to a school they looked at um, if it was raining that day. If it was like bad weather that day, you're never going to go to the school because you're going to spend the whole time looking at your feet to avoid puddles and not look at like the beautiful campus around you. So, um, so we no, should do a study on that. I know. I'm, I'm sure admissions counselors everywhere are like salivating over my high value theories there. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, no, I was not always destined to go to Duke, although there are a lot of very cute photos of me as, like, a Duke basketball player or cheerleader. Those are both Aww. in air quotes. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it ended up being a happy accident that I really liked biomedical engineering, and I actually really liked Chinese, both of which Duke is pretty strong at. So that's, that's what got me from high school into Duke. Okay, where does the Chinese come from, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, that is a... Um, interesting story. So um, in eighth grade, my best friend and I decided we wanted to take 
there was this program offered where they wanted students to start learning the really difficult languages younger. So there was like a specific program offering Chinese and Arabic to middle schoolers at like an after school program. Um, because the thought was that like your brain plasticity is higher. So if we can start them on, start people on languages that are so different from English. Um, and you know, I can't tell you what it is cause I really struggled with languages. Like I think I like failed Spanish. I worked very hard for my like B in Latin and like French. I just didn't even try. I could never get the whole like will like noun declensions and verb or no it's verb declensions and noun forms or what I couldn't do it but then Chinese just clicked like there's no grammar it's great I mean there is grammar but it's like very 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 different grammar and so once you get over the whole character thing it's not hard and so I took Chinese all through high school and middle school and um a story for a different time I ended up on a Chinese game show when I was 16 Um, in China (laughs) singing Beijing Opera which is very wild and I have very specifically changed my Chinese name since then so no one can find that video (laughs) Um, so but yeah that sounds like an incredible experience (laughs) do you still use Chinese in your everyday life Uh, do you find that you're able to keep up with it even though you don't sort of speak it or as much or take classes yeah, it's pretty hard, and particularly when we're getting into, like, super, like, my daily work is is very, very technical in terms of, like, the language we use. And so, like, most of the concepts, we're still struggling to figure out how to explain in English. So I definitely could not explain ultrasound to you in Chinese. I don't think I even know <laughs> the word ultrasound in Chinese. I should look that up. Um, but so I now say that I can get through, like, you know, like a dinner party Chinese. Like, I can, I can... Um, I can order food and I can get myself into trouble, but I can't always get myself out of trouble. So it's just like generally a <laughs> bad, gotcha. bad mix. So that's awesome. So what what year right now are you in your PhD again? Oh, you're not supposed to ask that question to PhD students. Oh, you're students. right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will tell you. Although I guess the ten years ago today early decision thing gives it away. I am in the middle of my sixth year of my PhD. And so average graduation time in our department is 6.5 years. And I'm not graduating in six months, so I'm going to be a little above that. <laughs> so. There we go. That's what we like to be, above average, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the one I want to be above average <laughs> So, so far, like, through this process, what, um, what have you, I guess, uh, what's an aspect that, like, you've really enjoyed about, like, doing a PhD? Um, and maybe some, some aspects that, that are not so much. Um. So PhDs are a very, very interesting beast in that they are, like in some ways, it's incredibly cool to take a lot of your upper level undergraduate classes will kind of take you right to the boundary of what science knows. And so you'll learn about things and it's it's always kind of that wow moment, um, particularly in undergrad when you're like, wait, I know the person who did this. Like, like I've you know, the moment you realize that like the professor who's teaching you that is the one who came up with this technique and you're like, oh my God, this is wild to me. Because for so long you learned science from textbooks and it was like, this is just what science, this big amorphous body knows. And then at undergrad, you kind of come like right up to the edge and you see the limit of what scientific knowledge is. And so graduate school is now facing that abyss and like exploring that abyss a little bit and finding one teeny, 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 tiny corner 
that you are going to add knowledge to yourself, um, which is both absolutely terrifying and, um, like, because who am I to think that I can move the the science, the scientific (laughs) body of knowledge forward, but also really cool because it means it's kind of, even if I go, if I choose to be a professor or to like pursue a tenure track career, it's kind of the last time in my life where I will be able to just single-mindedly focus on one question and just like chase that from all of the different angles. Um, and one of the things I really love about engineering research is that this is going to sound so like very, very cheesy. So I apologize in advance. But so many things um, in those math classes you're taking and stuff, you learn all these fundamentals and you're like, why am I learning this? Like, do I really need to know all of these different crazy math things? But then you get to a point in your PhD where things start coming together. So like one of the things in my research is we're looking how different shear waves propagate. I promise I won't bore you too much with details, but we had this realization and we're looking at shear waves like on tiny little micron scales that we're um, putting in the human body to measure how stiff a tissue is. But then you actually realize that the math that governs all of that, like the differential equations around that, is also the same math that governs how tectonic plates move, which is like a totally different scale. But it's, I think it's really beautiful, to be honest. I told you it would be cheesy, sorry. I think it's really beautiful that the math that governs transversely isotropic tectonic plates also can apply to what happens to transversely isotropic biological materials like muscle. That's a gross oversimplification, obviously, but it's still really cool to see like math works across all scales. And, and you just have moments like that again and again. And so it's, sometimes you end up on a, like a weird side adventure, like you're in and you're like looking through Soviet era like plate tectonic books and you're like what am I doing with my life and then sometimes you're like in the clinic with people and you know solving actual biomedical problems so wow your research sounds really interesting and I really like that analogy that you made by the way (laughs) Um, yeah to delve more into your interests you sort of spoke about how certain experiences during undergrad sort of shape and create or spark interests that you have later. Did you have this interest in ultrasound before you pursued your PhD? And how did that sort of begin? Um, I don't think I knew I wanted to do a PhD in ultrasound. I knew, so this is a little specific to Duke undergraduates, but like many Duke BME undergraduates, I came in as BME pre-med, one word, like one. They are actually two separate concepts as people quickly learn, (laughs) but I came in being like BME pre-med. So I'm going to do BME and then I'm going to medical school. And then I was doing some shadowing and I realized um, I had a really cool shadowing experience and I'm like very thankful to the doctor who set it up for me. It was the, uh, one of my close friends, mothers um, is head of anesthesiology. And so she let me shadow her for a day. But then I realized I don't like sick people. Um, and so it, I was way more interested in, for example, like what the surgical robot was doing and why the surgeon picked up what tool he did then, as opposed to like the person wow. whose heart yeah. was open in front of me. And I was like, maybe it's better before we go into thousands and thousands of dollars of medical school <laughs> debt that I realized this. Um, so I guess I originally thought I wanted to be a doctor because like many people 
growing up, you're good at science, so, you know, the, the adults around you say, oh, you should be a doctor, and you're like, yeah, okay, that sounds great, I want to help people, um, and so it was kind of through undergrad and exploring other corners of science, and, and biomedical science specifically, that I realized that mm-hmm. I can still contribute to science and help people and get all of those, like, things that make me feel fulfilled about my work without being an MD who practices medicine, so... Um, unfortunately I figured that out after I took the MCAT, but you know, you win some, you lose some. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a very relatable experience for a lot of BMEs, especially, um, when you, I guess when you realize that you don't like sick people, uh, which is a great realization to have, um, did you have any like fears or concerns, um, when you like were deciding, okay, like, or I guess did you decide like, okay, this means I want to do a PhD or, um, did you kind of look into other options, um, like jobs or something like that? Yeah, I looked around for a little bit. I was actually, my, as I think many people feel, my, well, my senior fall was not during a pandemic, so I have, like, a huge different thing there. Um, So apologies to anyone listening who has had to do any semester of a critical life choice in in a pandemic. But I was kind of a little... Unhinged is a strong word, but I really did not know what I wanted to do. So I applied to mm-hmm. consulting jobs. I applied to biomedical device companies um, like Stryker and Johnson and Johnson, and they just didn't feel right. Like it's not that I, I I failed or anything. It was just like I don't know. And I kind of eventually realized that I wanted to do how to phrase this. I wanted to do more than just what other people told me to do. Um, So I decided to, I wanted to go for the PhD because while I wasn't sure exactly what problem I wanted to point myself at yet, I -hmm. wanted to really see a research question like from start to finish. So come like see a problem, research what is already out there, come up with experiments to like, answer that problem, perform those experiments, analyze those experiments, and then, like, go back to the beginning again. And all of those, like, piecemeal are bits and pieces you've seen in undergrad, but I wanted to do the full circle, the the, the entire life cycle of it, I guess. That's, I'm getting really, like, metaphorical here, and I'm losing, losing, I need something tangential to come back to, but that's, that's part of why I ended up going for a PhD, so... Yeah, no, that's awesome. Wow, Anna, I think that's really helpful for especially undergrads nearing the end of their college career to hear because a lot of times we think that we have need to have our life super planned out. And yeah. I think that because there are such a diverse array of interests in engineering, such as going into consulting or going to med school, uh, getting your PhD and going to academia, uh, there's just so many things. So I think that's really helpful. And we also have to ask, since you're a Duke undergrad, (laughs) what sorts of other things were you involved with other than academics? What did you do for fun? Oh, goodness. Um, Way back in my undergrad days, I was, let's see, um, I joined two dance teams in undergrad, even though I had never danced before. Um, Actually, one of my best friends in biomedical engineering, um, I lost a bet to her and I had to try out for her dance team. So I joined... Um, the Ras Garba, an Indian dance team. Yeah, for... I'm on that actually, or I used to be. Really? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know it was still around. I think it like went dormant for a while, but yeah. Oh yeah, it got like revived and then it 
went dormant again, yeah. sadly. But yeah. yeah. Um, so I was on the Ras Garba team for a while, and then I also joined Irish Dance. Um, I'm actually not Irish, but I'm pale enough to be, so I figured I might as well give it a shot. Um, <laughs> so I was on dance teams. I was very involved in engineering student government, um, which is actually a pretty low-key organization. I think most of my claim to fame is that I designed, like, the punny t-shirts for a while um so some which are iconic have, by the way for anybody who doesn't know um well you don't know which ones <laughs> i designed and which ones other people designed so don't say mine are iconic but um i think my one of my best ones was a game of thrones themed one i don't know if that's still around i guess i'm i'm too old now for that to be around but there was a game of unknowns about the different schools of engine if that's um what else did i do that was most of it i was i was in a sorority um, I was not the most attendant sorority member, um, but I liked going to stuff when I wasn't doing problem sets. So I feel like it's very, very classic Duke engineer answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but like, I was technically a member of something. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're involved in a lot as an undergrad. And how was the transition to becoming a graduate student? I mean, that must have been hard and sort of, I guess, easy in some ways because you remained at the same institution. Can you tell us more? Yeah, I, so I made a very conscious choice when I decided to stay for my PhD that I, you know, some people you'll run into in your undergraduate career who stick around for like a super senior year or like a, a victory lap year. And so there were definitely <laughs> like a couple things I stuck around for that first year. Um, but I very much decided like, you know, I really loved my time as an undergrad, but I'm going to be here for another five, six, seven years. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a really conscious effort to set aside the things that I loved doing in undergrad, such as the Ras Garba team and just saying, you know, it's great. I love you all, but I'm going to do something else now. Um, and so gotcha. I think one of the other biggest things is that as a graduate student, you're really much more a resident of Durham. Um, uh -huh. I call myself a Duramite. I don't find it offensive, but I was told when I started as an undergraduate that it was offensive. So, um, but I am now very much like a citizen of Durham and stuff. Um, and so you just spend more time, like campus is a place you go to work as opposed to a bubble you live in and you eat all your meals there and all of your friends are there all the time. Um, I know that's a little different for pandemic kids, but right. <laughs> um, Definitely. So I don't know. It's just, it's just very different. Um, yeah, it's not neither good nor bad. Um, it's just different. It's it's kind of like being an adult with a job on campus, and that you come to campus every day, but then you go home and cook your own meals and stuff, and so. I mean, I guess some people could see that as similar to if you lived in a, like, off-campus senior apartment sort of thing. But even then, mm -hmm. off-campus senior apartments, there's, like, you know, certain traditions, people you've known for years, like, and so it's kind of pressing the reset button. On. It'd be like suddenly being dropped at another school and doing, like, your senior year off-campus at UNC, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to do my classes, and then I'm going to come home and stuff. Although not that any Duke senior would suddenly go take their senior year at UNC. That was a bad analogy. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was the most challenging part about that? I mean, I can see, I guess this is, this is a true for anybody going to grad school anywhere, but all of a sudden, like, you've been four years with the same people, you've made really good friends, you have this whole routine, and all of a sudden you're plopped in a new situation. How do you, how do you adjust to that? Um, I actually think what really helps is staying in contact with your friends, because you'll realize pretty quickly that 
almost everyone's going through this how do we adult if adulting is a verb now um sort of thing and that everyone's kind of freaked out and so it's okay to do things like just like text your friend and saying like hey I'm having a hard time and they're gonna be like yeah I'm having a hard time too um if anything staying I kind of got the easy route into it compared to some of my friends and that by staying in Durham there were still younger students I knew and things like that so there was still people I could go see in person and stuff whereas a lot of your friends when you graduate they're gonna say okay I'm taking a job in Chicago I don't know anyone but I'm moving to Chicago and so that's almost more isolating for them um so I think but I think that feeling of like okay this is the real world now is kind of universal for everyone and so I think just like check in with your friends but everyone's going through the same thing so it's not as I don't know if anything it's easier to stay in Durham on that because you at least you still know what you want to cook out for like comfort food when you're like (laughs) (laughs) stressing out cookouts Um, a constant that stays forever (laughs) yeah but not if you go to Chicago or something right Right, if you're like or you suddenly move to California and you've never been there before and you're like I don't know what my in and out stress order is like (laughs) so uh, I don't know I think everyone has that that's a pretty cop-out answer but the 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 mental health scary transition is just universal so (laughs) (laughs) um so you you mentioned like when you became an under a graduate student you kind of decided to like create a clear boundary between what you did in your undergrad and graduate what do you do nowadays to to that's fun or that keeps you balanced keeps you sane oh goodness um i have gotten into crafting with like and it's kind of what you imagine like you know a lot of time um I don't know. I do a lot of, particularly during the pandemic, I do a lot of crochet. I realize this is an audio podcast, so I can't really show, but I'm like, always have just off screen. I always have a crochet hook and some yarn. Um, for a while I got really into like, I call it extreme crafting. It's still (laughs) crafting, but I got, uh, while I was, I did an internship out in Seattle and I took glass blowing classes out there. I've taken welding, welding classes. There's a place in Durham. You can take welding classes. That's really cool. That's really Um, cool. Um, I got into glass etching with acid for a while. Um, I did get into wood burning, but uh, I nearly, I set off my smoke alarm too many times. And so (laughs) finally I stopped doing that. Um, So yeah, I found other things to do. I also took up running. I am a very, very, very slow runner, but I actually ran my first marathon just at the start of the pandemic. Um, So solo, which was very sad. Don't run a marathon solo. Um, I'll I'll remember that. (laughs) Yes. So I don't know. I've like, I've found things to do. I have new friends. We now, you know, we, for, for a good period of time in graduate school, when we could do these things, we were very into going to like pub trivias and things. Um, So we did, you know, we would bounce around Durham going to not just the places just off campus, but some of the the further afield ones um, to find pub trivia that suited us and is not, crazy crazy hard like full steams trivia if you've ever done that um, <laughs> um so we didn't completely demoralize ourselves when we couldn't get a single question right so by the way when you said like extreme crafting i was like okay what can she mean but then you really exceeded my expectations with the extremeness of your crafting <laughs> yeah i definitely burned myself more than i norm like more than when most people say crafting you are correct to think of like knitting and yarn and painting and that's what Uh i've been doing in the pandemic because safety first 
but generally speaking, I mean something that will probably burn me. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, I'm particularly impressed by your glass blowing skills because I had a AB chem teacher who was really into that. That's a really new skill. You know, how, do you still do it's that? It's so cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, it's an audio podcast, so I can't really like show them, but I, uh, I fell in love with it out. I did an internship out in Seattle for six months. When you do an internship wow. and a PhD, they're longer than the undergraduate ones. Cause they're trying you out for a PhD position. And while I was, Seattle's really known for glass blowing. Like there's a lot of, that's just like a big, um, bigger community out there. And so I took in the town I was um, renting a room in, I found this glass blowing studio and signed up for like 16 hours of classes. And I made my whole family got weird little like glass trinkets that year, like Christmas <laughs> ornaments, um, a whiskey glass and, you know, Ooh. lots of stuff. Can we um, talk a little bit more of the internship that you did? Like what, what does that look like? Like, does that, is that consistent with like every PhD program or specific yeah, to what you so did? It's pretty different. Um, almost every PhD is going to be very, very different on this front. So this is like very uniquely my experience and um, my lab's experience. So the lab I am doing my PhD in, Dr. Kathy Nightingale's lab, has a research agreement with um, Siemens Healthineers, um, an ultrasound company based out in Issaquah, Washington, just a suburb of Seattle. And so we have an agreement with them and they, um, I'm not going to get into the details, but basically we get to go do internships out there um, if we're interested in that. And I decided that because I had gone straight into my PhD from undergrad that I was like, huh, maybe I never really gave industry a fair shake. Like maybe I should give this a shot and just, and see, see what it means to work in industry. Um, and I'm really glad I did it. Because it showed me, I mean, it answered my questions about, like, what does it mean to work in industry? How is it different from undergrad in some ways, or undergrad or graduate school? In some ways, you work for, like, a larger group, and so more can get done. Like, it was pretty impressive to work for a company that builds entire ultrasound machines. And I'm like, oh, my God, you guys, like, do everything, like, everything from the software to the processing to the probes to the, like to the cart it's on is all like discussed in that building but it also means that sometimes things just move at a different speed whereas like in my lab if I want to get something done I just walk into Home Depot and buy the parts for it and then get reimbursed later and so it's just just very like different speeds for different things you know for Um, sure so yeah I I uh it's something that's unique to our lab but I also know that a lot of people um particularly nowadays I'm not versed enough in the numbers, but I think it's something like seven PhD students graduate for every, like, I think it's seven PhD students graduate for every one faculty position anywhere. And that's like not, so there's a lot more PhD students graduating than there are professorship positions. And so I think it's really important, again, my own personal thing here to keep your options open and Mm -hmm. Even if you really love research and you're like, I think I want to do this forever to see what the other side is like and and see what it's like to be in industry. And one of the advantages of being in the sciences is that very often you can go do an internship. I think most of the people in my program who have been interested in doing an internship have found a way to make it happen or work. So. Oh, it sounds like you've had a lot of very specific 
and sequential experiences that have led you to where you are right now in terms of your research. And delving more into that, if you were on, for example, morning NPR radio and you had a short bit where you had to describe the impact or purpose of what oh you God. do in the lab to a general audience, what would you say and what would you tell them about why you love your research so much and what makes it cool? Okay, the brief version, this is the like, what I'd say at Thanksgiving to family members who are not scientists thing. So, <laughs> Kathy, if you're listening to this, I apologize for oversimplifying the science. Um, but so, my research group um, uses acoustic radiation force, which is taking ultrasound and kind of um, ultrasound is by definition a sound, which is a minor pressure wave. Um, and so, turning it up to like 20 and using it to uh, push on the tissue remotely, um, kind of the quintessential I'm not touching you poking game with your younger sibling. And so, um, but by doing that, it's similar in that we can focus the sound and push inside the tissue, and that allows us to create um, what's called a shear wave. And so, if you think of, for example, dropping a rock in water and those ripples that move outward. Um, it's not a perfect example, but that's a type of shear wave. And depending on how fast those waves move, so if we now you know, think about dropping a rock into honey versus into jello, how fast those waves are going to move. Again, this is a very mixed analogy here. But we can tell how stiff something is. And what's really important about that is that, broadly speaking, we found that diseased tissues like cancers tend to be stiffer than the stuff around them. And there are many, many places in your body that you'd prefer we stick an ultrasound probe than a bunch of biopsy needles hunting and pecking for perhaps hitting on the diseased tissue because um, while biopsy is great, it's also a surgery, it's invasive, and it still misses a good percent of the time. So we are trying to diagnose disease, we're diagnostic only, trying to diagnose oh. a wide variety of diseases. I focus specifically on muscles, um, and so looking at skeletal muscle, and seeing if we can solve that has some more complicated things to it because it's got that that structure to it and that mm -hmm. like when you cut up some meat it's got those uh those lines to it and it's called transverse isotropy um so that's the the, sh the short version of what we're trying to do we're trying to find diseases using ultrasound not just baby <laughs> i like that that's definitely puts it into like very understandable digestible language yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is funny because i do get asked they're like why are you doing a phd in ultrasound when quite literally everyone and their mother has had an ultrasound right like, <laughs> uh, um, but that's one of the things i really like about it is that it means it's already pretty out there it's prevalent technology people are comfortable with it um and so you're not you know, if we come up with a really cool way to find a disease using ultrasound probes, we're asking them to probably buy a new probe, not a new $30 million MRI machine or like crazy laser, like, you know, <laughs> stuff. Right. So I like that it's, it's definitely it's like, I'm not going to say that it's cheap because all medical technology is expensive, but it's remaining in the accessible space, which is important to me. For sure. When you speak about like like what you do and, and like why it's important and everything, um, do you have any, um, I guess, goals for the immediate future and then also long term? Um, I know this is kind of like asking the question to like an undergraduate senior who doesn't know what they're doing. So it's kind of like panic mode. But um, if anything. Yeah, I 
I think it's really funny that you asked me to be on a podcast to, like, talk about things because I still truly do not know what I want to be when I grow up, and I am 27 now. Um, <laughs> so I really should figure that out at some point. Um, I am still really torn on if I want to stay in academia and try to become... So when I graduate with my PhD, I have a couple options. Um, I can go try to be a postdoc, um, which you have your PhD, but you're still working with a PI or primary investigator and designing experiments with them and kind of being not quite a second in command, but, but a similar function of really implementing things on your own. I can try to strike out on my own and start my own lab, um, which requires a university to hire me for a faculty position, which is pretty scary and those are scarce, um, but it is something I'm interested in. Or I also might still say, you know what, I think I go, like I liked my internship experience. Maybe I'm going to go work in the corporate world. Um, so you know, I really don't know yet and I keep thinking that one day some, like, you know, a the apple's going to fall from the tree and hit me in the head or something. I'll figure it out, but <laughs> I don't yet. So <laughs> maybe that's comforting to people that uh, I'm 27 and I still don't know, or it's like, my God, this woman needs to figure her, her deal out. So I'll figure it out. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's really cool that you still have, yeah. like, so many possibilities. Like, you can still yeah. do such a big range of things. Yeah, um, and I think... I'm one of those people that I, I never like saying no to things, and so I don't like closing the door on anything, right? Like, I think I've closed the door on medical school now, but technically I could still go back and go to medical school. Like, I'm not going to do that. I do not need two doctorates, but but I could. Yeah, that's, that's, as Becky said, that's, like, really interesting that even at this stage you sort of have, like, these different options and these still, like, big decisions to make, and I guess there are always two sides to those sorts of <laughs> situations. Yeah, but I also think, again, if the intended audience here is undergraduates, I think a lot of people focus their senior year of undergrad on like, oh my God, I have to decide this is going to be my career path. And then I hope that's not true because I haven't chosen yet. And from my friends who have done undergraduate, they've all made a pivot of some form since their first choice. So mm -hmm. I'm not as scared to jump um, into something and know I might have to pivot because I've seen my friends do it. Well, wow. yeah. would you have any more advice for an incoming or a current undergraduate engineering student who maybe doesn't know exactly what they want to do for the rest of their life? Or I know you've talked about this a little bit, but it seems like you have a lot of wise words of wisdom to share. Do you have anything else that you think would be really helpful to, for them to hear? Yeah. Um, I don't know how to do it for like an amorphous, unidentified person. I've had a lot of really great conversations with undergraduates who are like kind of going through that. Um, and so I'm good at like the one-on-one -on -one conversation for that. But sometimes I'll ask people questions about like, well, so have you tried research? What have you liked about research? Have you mm -hmm. liked? And so, you know, you'll get some feedback from them about like, oh, I like this. I don't like that. And so I would actually pay attention to what of the things in your curriculum you've done so far, what skills have you liked and what skills have you not liked? Um, and so, for example, within BME, everyone still, to my memory, unless they've completely redesigned the curriculum on me, um, you still have to take two core classes, right? And so if you're yeah. like, yes. I hated my imaging class and I hated signals and systems, like 
you know, I never want to do a Fourier transform again, that's good to know. You probably don't want to do something that involves signal processing. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in the, the things you dislike. Ruling things out is just as important as ruling things in. And so I would start to think, like, incrementally, not necessarily about exact classes you've taken, but even things like, you know, in your senior design, for example, I think that's one of the first really, like eye-opening classes about what you want to do how do you feel about having to write up the documents about your device and what it does do you hate the fact that you have to write it down or are you like no actually it's important to document this process okay maybe you'd be okay in the like you know some of the regulatory side of things and so i don't know it's really hard to like play this game for an amorphous (laughs) nobody but i would start thinking about like (laughs) did you hate circuits did you love circuits did you do you no one loves writing lab reports so that's like a bad example but like (laughs) but like when it comes to design were you okay with documenting your thought process and the design process or you were like this is a drag i just want to get on to the next one like all of these are uh, by next one i mean the next design iteration of whatever you're working on Mm -hmm. all of these can help identify what you might want to do longer term and you also don't have to know like I don't know. I I still don't know. So, um, yeah, I think the things that get a short shrift or have when I was an undergrad was medical devices, but I think that's changed a lot and that a lot of people are now involved in the BME Design Fellows Program, um, which I think is really cool and is something I wish I had an undergrad. Uh-huh. Um, so try that if you're thinking about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, awesome. One more question I wanted to ask was that, like, I know for me personally, reaching out to like mentors and um, others for like advice, just hearing hearing their story and having conversation with them has been useful. Um, I guess who has been a really, or I guess multiple uh, mentors of yours, and, and how have you kind of, how have they helped you um, in the last like steps of your life, and, and I guess going forward. Yeah. So my best advice, well, one I'll say, I think people get really scared of like, how do I find a mentor? And do you just like cold email people and be like, will you be my mentor? No, that's awkward. That's weird. Like, don't do that. Um, it, it comes up a lot more organically and naturally. And those are like the better mentorship experiences and things. Um, some of my mentors have been, and I have different mentors for different things. So like when I was an undergraduate, I had, um, a woman who was actually just texting today who was, two years older than I was in the program and so I I would text Stephanie about like who should I take this class from like you know is it worth getting up at 8 30 for this like you know the minor things like that but also when it came time for me to be like eh do I want to do medical school do I not want to she had actually just made that decision and she ended up at in an MD PhD program and so talking to her helped um Mm -hmm. some on that front um, I wish I had talked to graduate students more. Part of that is very biased by the fact that, like, I am a graduate student now. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, we have advice. People should come talk to us. So, like, I'm very aware of that those biases. But even if they didn't go to Duke or, what, like, whatever undergraduate institution, they still have done engineering degrees and they've gone through a decision process, um, Mm-hmm. I will warn you that they will, by definition, accidentally bias you towards going to graduate school because everyone tries <laughs> to, like, justify <laughs> yeah. their own choices. Um, 
But, like, as long as you know that going in, it's still interesting to hear their thought process and talk to them. You can also, like, if you know people who ended up in medical school and stuff like that, you can ask them about that. Um, And then when it comes to faculty mentors and things, I think that's one of the more interesting ones. I'm a big believer in, similar to, like, the vibe of this podcast I'm getting, is that everyone likes to talk about themselves. So, like... Use the Flunch program. They used to have Grunch, which was weirdly named. Um, I don't know if that's still a thing. That was. I think it's still a thing. Yeah. Um, I tried to get my sister as an undergraduate, and I tried to get her to grunch me. She wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> but the uh, so use those things that are available, and even if you're like, I'm not like, don't only use it because you're trying to get a rec letter or trying to you know get a position in a lab or something use it to just like get to know these people and sometimes it'll be like wow I never want to do what you do that sounds very boring but again that's you've closed a door and that can be just as important as opening a door so that's super cheesy and I'm so sorry but I would you know just get to know them as people and then naturally the other stuff comes yeah, no, absolutely. That's definitely something we're trying to do with this podcast yeah. as well. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's great because um, even as an undergrad in my lab, my main mentor has been a graduate student who has been really, really awesome and has helped me so much um, and really taught me so much. So, this is sort of uh, kind of a funny question because Becky is in the same lab. Yeah. But how have your experiences been in terms of interacting with undergrads? Uh, how does that play into is teaching something that you're passionate about and how does that play into your research interests um so i will say one of one of the funniest things is that my office in non-pandemic times is right across from the bme homework boxes and so there are probably a good number of bme students who know me is as that really nasty b word who won't share her stapler because every friday starting at like 3 30 to 4 30 there's just a constant stream of people coming by and being like oh my gosh you have a stapler and it's some i'm like generally nice to the first nice to the first two and then i'm just like no <laughs> um even when like i have a stapler clearly sitting on <laughs> <laughs> turn your homework that's in on time that's awesome uh, so so I apologize to those undergraduates that I've given a stank face to on that. Um, graduate students all end up TAing, and so um, you, as part of at least at Duke, but most graduate school programs, you TA for at least two semesters. Um, you can TA for other graduate student classes, but those are pretty rare. So I did one for a junior graduate student class, and then one for an undergraduate class. Um, and so that was actually my first year of graduate school. I TA'd for a senior undergraduate class, which was super odd because all of them were one year younger than me. Um, which one? Um, I TA'd for blast and ballistics um, oh, okay. originally. Yeah. Um, and so it was definitely amusing and that like, <laughs> I think some of them forgot that I had gone to Duke. So they like were not so subtle on LDOC. And I was like, I know what you're doing, please. Like, <laughs> Stop. <laughs> like, um, that's awesome. I don't know. I, yeah, I would recommend, well, one, remember that your graduate student TAs are human too. So like we don't reply to emails at 3am and things like that. 
Um, I think but, she's adding you, Rowan. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that is not at anyone in particular. Um, but also that like graduate students have their own breadth and depth of experiences and they all ended up in graduate school somehow. Or mm-hmm. And so they also all made the decisions to rule in or out industry or whatever it is you're considering. So like get to know them too. Um, you know, we're a bit, we can be a bit of an odd bunch graduate students, but, uh, we're still, we're still a underutilized source of knowledge. I don't know that that really answered your question about my opinion of undergraduates. You also have to remember my sister is an undergraduate. So sometimes I look at y'all and I'm like, you guys are my baby sister. So uh, that's awesome. So, yeah. That's um, maybe we should be like gearing uh, this podcast more towards graduate students as well. We should definitely explore, explore that that untapped yeah, depth. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I, we've covered sort of a lot of different things. Is there anything else you, any, I don't know, wise words of wisdom or anything else you want to say? Like, <laughs> please don't ask me for wise words of wisdom. I don't even know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, everything I can think of is so cheesy. It's like savor your time, which sounds so mean to say to kids in a pandemic. Right. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think the one thing I would say, particularly to like younger students listening to this, right. So like the freshmen and sophomores, because I know I went through this too, this moment of like, do I even want to stay in engineering? Like, again, I came to Duke for Chinese and biomedical engineering. So there was solidly (laughs) some times when like, math class was not going great that I was like, I'm done with this. I'm going to go be a Chinese major and just like, mm-hmm. peace out, Pratt. Um, we need t-shirts like that. So, peace out, yeah, Pratt. Yeah, I was about to say <laughs> Peace that. out, Pratt. That yeah. can be your, your senior uh, class of 2021 <laughs> design or whatever. That's I bet awesome. they do that. Um But anyway, I think for me, one of the big lessons for me was, like many Duke students, um, while I did have to work hard in high school, it was Pratt and a lot of the early classes with those, like, just slogging through physics and math and chemistry were just, it was a slog. Like, there's no better way to put it, and it's kind of like, why am I doing this? And so... Part of me wants to just be like, hold on, you'll have your amazing moments later where you realize that like the math behind geotectonic plates is the same as what you're researching <laughs> or like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the equations that govern blood flow in the body is the same as the ones that they use to like figure out, you know, the water system in like public sewage and all that, <laughs> like all that all very cool things. Right. Um, but, but those moments come later and that can be really hard. Um, and so I think the thing, and th- those things come later. That being said, I don't want to tell people like, Oh, hang on. If you, if you know, it's not right for you, that's okay too. Like, um, engineering isn't for everyone and that's really okay. But I will say that I think if you look solely at my math GPA from Duke, so like the math classes I took in undergraduate and then I had to take a couple more in graduate school, it was a very low number. I did not do great in math classes, which is now very funny because my PhD will involve a lot of 
rather difficult math related to solving these shear wave wow. equations and transversely isotropic material. And so some of it is a little bit just like grit and keep going and uh-huh. yeah. you'll I'm sh- I'm actually considering when I finish my PhD emailing one of my first math professors <laughs> and be like you don't remember me but I tanked your class. And here's my PhD dissertation. That is awesome. <laughs> that sounds like an excellent idea. It's <laughs> like a weird <laughs> mic drop seven years delayed moment. I love but, it. And there we go. Ladies and yeah. gentlemen, wise words of wisdom from <laughs> <Anna> I- <laughs> Mic drop seven years later. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, this is awesome. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We learned a ton. Yeah. I think everyone else is going to learn a ton. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, so that was a really fun conversation. Um, that was actually one of our first recordings. So um, huge thanks to Anna for being on our podcast. Yeah, thanks to Anna. We um, learned a lot about what it's like to be a grad student um, and a lot of really just good life tips in general. Yeah, so thanks for listening to everyone out there. Uh, subscribe to our Apple podcast at After Office Hours. And also you can follow us on Instagram at After Double Underscore Office Hours. Stay tuned for more episodes. We have a lot of interesting professors lined up. So see you next time. <laughs>